You're listening to an episode of A Walk to Remember, a podcast created for Yom HaShoah. Join us today and every day in pledging to never forget the Holocaust. In a chapter titled Eugenics in Hitler's Germany, Robert N. Proctor opens by writing, We like to think that medicine is a force for healing in the world. But we should also not forget that in the wrong political climate, medicine can join with evil to produce monstrosities. Such was the case in the Nazi era. Proctor then goes on to list the sterilization of disabled people as one of the most horrific crimes of the Nazis, along with cruel medical experiments, pernicious racial theories, and industrial skill murder. While Jews are the most notable victims of the Holocaust, there were many others viewed by the Nazis as undesirable, including homosexuals, the physically and mentally disabled, Roma, Poles and other Slavic people, Jehovah's Witnesses, and members of opposing political groups. The sterilization and or killing of those with disabilities were crimes committed in the guise of medicine. However well-intentioned these practices may have started out, they clearly became tragic excuses to control the population and help promote the Aryan race. By definition, eugenics is the practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations, as by sterilization, to improve the population's genetic composition. The term eugenics, which stems from the Greek word meaning good birth, was first coined by English naturalist and mathematician Sir Francis Galton in 1883. Its German result, Rassenhagen, racial hygiene, was first invoked by economist Alfred Poltz in 1895. While the concept of racial hygiene existed far before Hitler's rise to power, it was enacted on a monumental scale during the Holocaust. Nazis were increasingly interested in preserving pure German bloodlines, and couples were even required to provide ancestry records before getting married. In fact, under the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, interracial relationships were prohibited, and couples wishing to marry were required to prove that neither spouse had Jewish ancestry. Official policy regarding ancestral proof increased interest in, and the necessity of, genealogical research. German citizens were encouraged to learn about their family's racial and medical histories to allow for the preservation and improvement of the hereditary health of the German nation as a whole. Specifically, they could certify their racial purity through the birth, baptism, and or marriage certificates of their ancestors. A brochure titled, But Who Are You?, aimed to assist German citizens with such research. The brochure notes that the real task of the genealogical chart is to sharpen our awareness of the value of the genetic material inherited from our ancestors and the need for painstaking care of it. Further, the brochure emphasizes that everyone has a sacred obligation to his kin, and thus to his people, to keep his blood free of racially adverse influences and intermingling. But eugenics did not stop there. Three main programs, the sterilization law, the Nuremberg racial laws, and the euthanasia operation, formed the heart of the Nazi program of medicalized racial cleansing. These, especially the euthanasia program, were the programs that cleared the path for subsequent efforts to eliminate entire peoples from European soil. Eugenics allowed not only for certain traits and characteristics regarded as desirable to be continued, but also for other less desirable genes to be eliminated over time. It is not hard to see why Hitler and the Nazi party would find this appealing. 
On July 14, 1933, the Nazi government passed the Law for the Prevention of Offspring with Hereditary Diseases, or Sterilization Law, which allowed for the forcible sterilization of anyone suffering from genetically determined illnesses. These illnesses included a wide range of disorders and disabilities, some of which were not even hereditary. Illnesses that could lead to sterilization included congenital feeble-mindedness, perhaps a euphemism for mental retardation, schizophrenia, hereditary epilepsy, hereditary blindness or deafness, Huntington's chorea, manic depression, bipolar disorder, any obvious serious physical deformities, and chronic alcoholism. Under this law, medical professionals, such as doctors, dentists, nurses, and midwives, were now required to report patients with these illnesses or disabilities. Directors of hospitals, mental institutions, schools, prisons, workhouses, and concentration camps also had the ability and responsibility to propose candidates for sterilization. Within one year of the law taking effect, 388,400 proposals for sterilization had been submitted, and 92% of reviewed cases were approved. Later, sterilization laws also extended to youth who were considered by the Third Reich to be juvenile delinquents. Children were labeled as such for a range of behaviors, such as being antisocial, being truant from school, loitering after curfew, smoking, drinking, attending dances and cabarets after 9 p.m., and for girls, consorting with soldiers. Adolescents accused of these crimes were sent to reformatories where they were subjected to harsh diet along with forced labor. Sometimes they were also sterilized. While many were targeted by the Nazis for sterilization, others were actually euthanized. In a video interview, Benno Muller-Hill, a professor of genetics at the University of Cologne, explains that the euthanasia program was different from earlier programs and that it was not legal, so to speak. It was just a letter from Hitler which opened up the possibility. The letter he is referring to, Hitler's authorization for the euthanasia program, or Operation T4, was signed in October of 1939, but dated September 1st, 1939. He signed this secret authorization so that participating physicians, medical staff, and administrators could be protected from prosecution. This authorization was backdated to September 1, 1939, possibly to suggest that the effort was related to wartime measures. The program was called T4, a code name that came from the street address of the program's coordinating office in Berlin, Tiergartenstrasse 4. Hitler's directive appointed Fuhrer Chancellery Director Philip Bohr and physician Karl Brandt to lead the killing operation. Under their leadership, T4 operatives established six gassing installations for adults as part of the euthanasia action. It is important to note that this law did not just apply to adults with disabilities. There were many young children who were euthanized because of physical and mental disabilities as well. In another video interview, Holocaust survivor Robert Wigman, whose hip had been injured during delivery, leaving him with a disability, describes reporting for a physical at five years old. He describes how his mother overheard a conversation that the doctors would do away with me, put me asleep. His mother feared that he was to be killed, so during the doctor's lunch break, she grabbed him and they ran away from the clinic. From there on, we really went into hiding, because now we knew that they were really after us, Robert recalls. If Robert's mother had not overheard that conversation, and or if they had not been able to flee and hide, Robert likely wouldn't have survived to tell the harrowing tale. Another Holocaust survivor, Anche Kusmund, 
is the sister of a euthanasia victim. In a video interview, she asks, who would have thought in 1933 that handicapped people, ill people, would be murdered? This never occurred to anyone. It was beyond all imagination. She describes having a disabled younger sister, Irma, who developed late, explaining that she learned to walk late and always had to be carried around and be fed. In December 1933, at the age of three, Irma was admitted to Alderstoff Institute in Hamburg, and she was subsequently killed in 1944. Anje recalls that the sad thing is, at some point, Irma disappeared from my family's memory. My father must have visited her in the beginning. My father told me that Irma apparently died in Vienna. In the interview, she goes on to describe how most of the children in the home died of exhaustion and hunger in doses of medicines or they were given lethal injection. A worthless life, that's what they called it, worthless life. That was the official term. Unfortunately, Anche's story is not an uncommon one, and the idea of determining which individuals were and were not worthy of life was very prevalent during the Holocaust. These are just a few of the many Holocaust survivors who unfortunately have first-hand experiences with euthanasia. The Nazi regime stopped at nothing to eliminate those they deemed undesirable, and individuals with disabilities are just one category of the victims they targeted. It is heartbreaking to think that the ones who were merely sterilized and not euthanized are considered lucky because their lives were not taken from them. But their ability to have children was taken from them, which is, in and of itself, an extreme form of abuse. While eugenics had existed for quite some time before Hitler's rise to power, the Nazi regime took it to an extreme, leading to countless lives ended, or at the very least, dramatically altered. As Proctor noted, eugenics and euthanasia serve as a tragic reminder that while medicine has the potential to do so much good in the world, in the wrong hands it can become incredibly dangerous. Thank you for listening. All the episodes in this podcast were written and researched by the students in Mercyhurst's History and Memory of the Holocaust class. We'd like to thank the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which provides educational resources, primary source collections, and more at no cost to students and educators like us. Education is the first step to combating hate. You can support this mission by supporting your local Holocaust education initiatives or by donating directly to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum at ushmm.org support.